Man, it's great to see y'all. How are y'all going to leave? We got a lot of recovering Baptists in this room. Is that why this front row is so wide open here? Nobody, DJ, come on, my man. You, I, I need somebody up here. You're too far away. Okay, fine. Yeah, okay. Nobody's going to help me out? Man, brother, got to do. Man, it's great to, to be with y'all. I, I've got to meet a lot of you. I know I may not know some of you, but my name's Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. It's really awesome to be with you tonight. I almost didn't make it. I had to sprint in for my five-year-old's third ever t-ball game. I missed to be here. Yeah, here's a picture of him in his, in his gear. Uh, isn't he cute? My wife got him these batting gloves, and the only problem is now he wears them everywhere. So he's like, I call him my little Michael Jackson. He just walks around with his little black gloves on everywhere he goes. So I, I had to leave his game to be here. And then while don't feel bad that we were getting our butts kicked. I was really glad to leave. Man, you haven't had your butt kicked until you've had it kicked in five-year-old t-ball. But I am glad to be here. Um, when Sid asked me if I could speak uh, a few months ago, I was really excited about it because I think that what, uh, what you all are talking about this semester is very interesting and very important. Namely, uh, our bodies and how it's really important for our spiritual lives that we learn how to use our bodies well. In fact, I'm a, a firm believer that you cannot have a healthy spiritual life if you don't know what to do with your body. Firmly believe that. Now, to be clear, I'm not just talking, you know, uh, kale salad and Pilates and Sydney's CrossFit cult. I'm not talking that stuff. That's, that's all good. Should try to recruit you guys and girls to the cult as well? I'm resisting still. That's all good. That's not what I'm talking about. Rather, I'm talking about this, this deep, profound synergy between the spiritual and the physical that has always been uniquely at the heart of Christian faith. In a lot of ways, this deep synergy between the spiritual and the physical, it's what sets Christianity apart from a lot of the other major world religions, in particular Buddhism, Hinduism. So I was really excited to come here. And then Sid assigned me my text, and I was a little less excited. I think you'll understand once we read it. It'll be up here on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians 6, if you have your Bibles, we'll read verses 12 through 20. Short, but very interesting text. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. It's Apostle Paul speaking here. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two, this is quoting Genesis, right? The two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one in spirit with him, with the Lord. So flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. First Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. So first time I get to come talk to you all semester long, and Sid gives me a text about prostitution. That sound right? That's the only way to treat your elders? Lord. So to be clear, I'm not here today because I'm a, an expert on the topic, but because Sid is too much of a whim to talk about this text yourself. But 
Dad said, it's a very interesting text, isn't it? Oh, I think it's a very interesting text. For a bit of context, 1 Corinthians is, uh, of course, like most of the New Testament, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church. He wrote this one to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth has a very well-deserved reputation for being a bit of, um, a, bit of a dumpster fire, would probably be a good way to put it. It's a crazy place, man. There are all sorts of things going on there. There's all this bickering going on in the church, right? They're all arguing about, like, who their favorite preacher is, right? Can you imagine if it was modern day? I like Matt Chandler. He preaches too long. Come on, man. Nobody got six hours to listen to a Matt Chandler sermon. Why does a man always have to start in Genesis 1? Does every sermon have to start in Genesis? It's too long. That's what I'm saying. Some people, are, I like John Mark Comer. John Mark Comer, he tries too hard. That man needs to feel special. So bad. I know Sid loves John Mark Comer. He does try so hard. Though some people are like, I like Joe Osteen. Man's got too much mullet. You can't take that man seriously. You can't listen to the gospel. We'll do it with the big curly mullet in the back. They're, they're all complaining about who they like the most, who's the best. On top of that, they're suing each other all the time. Um, perhaps most infamously, one of them is even sleeping with his stepmom. You remember this story? It's wild. And apparently everybody in the church is cool with it. They're like, it's weird, but they're so cute together. You know what I mean? Who, who are we to say? Anyways, that's the context we're working with as we encounter this, this very odd but interesting text. Very first phrase of the very first verse is very, very important. That's what it says. All things are lawful for me. Updated translation of the NIV probably says it a little bit better because it says it a bit more clearly. What I read to you was the New American Standard. And so we'll use it here. This is what it says. I have the right to do anything you say. Okay, and so what the NIV makes clear here is that uh, this is not something that Paul is saying and endorsing himself. Paul is not saying, I have the right to do anything. Rather, this is Paul quoting the Corinthians back to themselves. Does that make sense? So Paul says, you all say that you have the right to do anything. And so why do these Corinthians think they have the right to do anything? Doesn't it seem like a kind of strange thing to think you have the right to do, have the right to do anything? Well, reading between the lines a bit, it's clear that these Corinthians are, um, they're very hyper-spiritual people. Do you know what I mean by that? People who are very spiritual about everything. You know, people who are just very spiritual about everything. People who are very spiritual about everything. They always have a very high view of what? Their own spiritual maturity. That's the way it tends to work. And so they're very spiritual about everything. They have a high view of their own spiritual maturity. So they seem to think that they were free to do whatever they wanted with their bodies so long as their hearts, so long as their spirits were in the right place. That's the idea. I can do whatever I want with my body as long as my heart's in the right place. Because what really matters is my heart, is my spirit, is my attitude. And this brings us to prostitution and why many Christians in Corinth apparently thought it was no big deal. For some context, <clears throat> prostitution was not only legal, but it was widely accepted in ancient Greco-Roman culture. In fact, it was standard practice for ancient Greco-Roman males to have sex with basically anybody they wanted to. Prostitutes, young boys in particular, that was the way it worked. They could have sex with pretty much anybody they wanted to except who? Another man's wife. That was the only person you could have sex with because in that world, that was you taking somebody else's property. I'm not endorsing this view. That's just the way they talk about it back then. All that to say, well, it's kind of shocking to us that these Christians could have believed that prostitution was okay I think we ought to be, um, I don't know, more than a little slow to judge because I think there are more than a few interesting parallels in modern Western culture, a few blind spots that we have. Most obviously, modern Western culture is in this very weird place in regards to sex. You have perhaps noticed this, where we are both very casual about it, right? We're so casual about sex. 
And then yet we are also very, very sensitive about it. Have you noticed this? So casual on the one hand, but then so sensitive and weird about it on the other hand. It's very weird. Um, For example, over 70% of 18 to 29-year-olds, that's probably most of us in the room, think casual sex is okay. Over 70% of 18 to 29-year-olds. Obviously, that's a pretty high number, but I think that fits in well with a lot of us have generally felt, which is that modern culture is very casual in the way it thinks about sex. You know this. And uh, obviously, uh, as is always the case, we Christians, we cannot help but be influenced by the culture that we inhabit. How could it be otherwise? And so it should probably not be a surprise that, what is it, uh, 50% of people who say they're Christian also think casual sex is okay. Uh, that might sound shocking to you. Doesn't sound shocking to me. Sounds about right, given my kind of read of where things are at. So again, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Modern people are very casual about sex. You know this. But then somewhat surprisingly, we're also very, very, very sensitive about it. Case in point, even though uh, you all, can I say us all, include myself amongst you? I'm an old millennial. Millennials, Gen Zs, right? Even though we tend to think about sex very casually, we don't think it's that big of a deal, we don't think it's anything in particular sacred, even though we think about sex way more casually, we have way less sex. Y'all, and this is across the board. Married, single, casual sex, committed sex, all of us are having way less sex, and the number of young people not having sex has more than doubled over the last 15 years. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that weird? The number of young people not having sex has more than doubled over the last 15 years. This phenomenon is so profound that social psychologists have given it the amazing nickname, the sex recession. That's literally what it's called. (laughs) The sex recession. So for all this big talk we do about Netflix and chill, it turns out it's mainly just Netflix. (laughs) Netflix and nap. That's what's really going down. Netflix and nap. That's what we do at my house. And there are all sorts of reasons for this casual but also very sensitive weirdness about sex that modern people have. But what I think is most important is to draw our attention to the way in which all of us are very deeply affected by the very casual nature of the way all modern people think about sex. And if any previous generations of Christians were to see how casually most of us think about pornography, casual sex, just sex outside of marriage, they would be every bit as shocked with us as we are shocked by ancient Corinthians who thought it was okay to sleep with prostitutes, right? So, these Corinthians, they think they have the right to do anything so long as their hearts are in the right place. And to put it mildly, Paul, he disagrees with this. But I want us to pay careful attention as to why Paul disagrees with it. I'm gonna read verse 13 again, and we'll use the NIV again because it does a better job making clear what Paul's saying. Paul says, you say... Food for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, and God will destroy them both. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. So once again, Paul quotes the Corinthians back to themselves. He says, I know that you think that food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will destroy them both one day, so who cares about food and stomachs and all that silly stuff? And once again, what we're seeing here is what? 
this hyper spirituality of the Corinthians where they believe that physical stuff like what, like food and stomachs and bodies don't really matter because one day God's going to get rid of it anyways. And so all that really matters is the spiritual. All that really matters is you making sure that your heart is in the right place. And now Paul trades in at this point his, uh, his surgeon scalpel that he's been working with for a demolition hammer. Right? And he just goes to town on this fake spiritual, hyper-spiritual spirituality of the Corinthian Christians. He says, no, 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 no. God is not going to destroy food and stomachs and bodies one day, but it's actually going to work the exact opposite because God is for the body. And how do we know that God is for the body? How is Paul so confident that God's not going to get rid of bodies? How do we know God is for the body? Think about it like this. When God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, you know this story? It's it's a very important one, well known around here. When God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, what exactly did God raise? Did he raise the, the idea of Jesus? Did he raise the memory of Jesus? Did, did he raise the spirit of Jesus? No, when God raised Jesus from the dead, what did he raise? He raised Jesus Christ's body because Jesus, like every one of us in a very real sense, is his body. Right? This is a very simple thing, but we always need to be reminded of it over and over because we have this seemingly irresistible tendency to forget that according to Scripture, y'all, we do not have bodies. In a very real sense, we are bodies, okay? We do not have bodies. We are bodies. You are not a spirit who lives in a body for now. You're not a person who has a body for a little while, but like the resurrected Jesus, your body is and will forever be an essential part of your person. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that you will always have the exact same body that you have now. I know some of you are going, "Uh uh-oh, need to tighten it up a little bit, a few more crunches, a few less donuts if I'm going to be with this thing forever. That's not what we have in Scripture. We have all this talk about our bodies being what? Transformed and glorified and walked through walls, all this great stuff, right? But for all that talk about transformation and glory, it's very clear that they will still be physical bodies. This brings us to verse 15. In verse 15, uh, Paul gets pretty explicit, doesn't he? He gets a bit explicit. He says, look, our bodies belong to Christ, so we dare not take our bodies that belong to Christ and allow them to simultaneously belong to a prostitute. In other words, Paul says, look, I'm going to level with you. Um, your heart cannot be in the right place if your, you know what is in the wrong place. That's what Paul says. It's not possible. May it never be, says Paul. It's not possible to do, but it's very important to note here that Paul's not bringing the hammer down on sexual immorality because Paul's some prudish Puritan who thinks sex is like bad and yuck and we should all just just pray and think about Jesus instead of having sex, right? That's not what Paul says. No, rather what Paul thinks is that he brings the hammer down for the exact opposite reason, okay? Namely, unlike the fake spiritual, super spiritual Corinthians who think they can do whatever they want with their bodies so long as their hearts are in the right place, Paul thinks that nothing is more important than what we do with our bodies because our bodies are so good and so important. In other words, Paul brings the hammer down on sexual immorality because Paul is for the body, not 
because Paul is against it. People get this wrong about Christianity all the time. Paul brings the hammer down because he's for the body, not because he's against it. In other words, Paul is so negative about this idea that we can do whatever we want with our bodies because Paul is so positive about our bodies, not because Paul's against them. And we need to talk about um, purity culture a bit at this point. Are you familiar with this phrase, purity culture? Yeah, a number of us are. For those unfamiliar with, with the term, it's, it's difficult to define with any perfect precision, <clears throat> excuse me, but it, it uh, refers roughly to a movement, I don't know, over the last 30 years, probably, <clears throat> primarily among evangelicals, that really pushed the importance of purity among young Christians. So this is things like uh, true love weight pledges and purity rings. You remember that? That's a huge part of like my upbringing. <clears throat> and obviously, encouraging young Christians to be sexually pure is a uh, pretty solid idea. Right? It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty biblical. Um, but one of the primary problems with purity culture and its movement was that it, it majored in the bad news and it minored in the good news. And by that, I mean instead of emphasizing the goodness of God's design for sex, purity culture tended to emphasize the badness of failing to live up to God's design for sex. Um, Caitlin Beatty, she's a writer. I can't remember where she She's an editor at Brazos Press. She wrote a really awesome article about this a few years ago. I'll reference it again. But here, here's how she puts it. She puts, rather than emphasize the gift of sex within marriage, Purity culture typically led with the shame of having sex outside of it. Now, additionally, purity culture had the very unfortunate tendency of making females overly responsible for the male struggle with lust. So uh, the the general idea, what you would hear a lot at the time was, you got all these you know, young males who are trying to love Jesus, you know, and they're the leaders, and we got to protect them. But then Satan's using all these seductress females to, to make these young males who are supposed to change the world stumble. So these females really need to stop wearing those short shorts and, you know, make sure your fingertips get to the bottom of them and stop making your brothers in Christ stumble. And again, this, like, general idea, you can see, like, the good and what they were trying to accomplish. And this idea that we are responsible for one another, it's obviously a very biblical idea, 100%. But unfortunately, this was very often twisted in a way that made women overly responsible for the male struggle with lust. Instead of telling males to just stop being losers, you know, and act like men, right? This was a very unfortunate part of the movement. So that's purity culture, some of its major flaws. And as is usually the case, when a correction was made, it was what? It was an overcorrection. That's why we typically do these things. And so as purity culture has been on the way out, you don't hear a ton about it anymore, it's been replaced in large measure by what we might call consent culture, consent culture. Like purity culture, it's difficult to define with perfect precision, Um, but it, it broadly speaking refers to a movement that feels traditional sex ethics are outdated, repressive, and shaming and should be replaced by a more progressive sex ethic that's centered on consent autonomy and pleasure, right? Consent, autonomy, and pleasure. Sorry, I've been yelling at five-year-olds. One of the most uh, prominent Christian advocates of the kind of consent culture movement within Christianity is a a lady named Nadia Bowles-Weber. She's a Lutheran pastor in Denver. She wrote a book probably four years ago called Shameless. I think we have a picture of it. A Case for Not Feeling Bad About Feeling Good About Sex. It is a good title, isn't it? Clever title. 
And uh, it's an interesting read. I cannot uh, endorse everything in the book, but it's, it's interesting. And the basic idea is that the traditional biblical sex ethic in which sex is reserved for marriage is outdated, and we should have the freedom to choose what sex looks like for us so long as there is mutual consent and mutual pleasure. If I had to summarize the sentence in a book, it'd be this quote. Whatever sexual, oh, well, there's that one. This is kind of her setup. It's time for us to grab some matches and haul our antiquated and harmful ideas about sex and bodies and gender out into the yard, burn it, and start over, right? That's the big idea. More specifically, we'll go to that next quote. She says, whatever sexual flourishing looks like for you, that's what I would like to see happen in your life. If you've been at Vista for a while, I don't know how long some of you have been. Some of you have been here for a while, I know. Some of you may be kind of new. Um, then you've perhaps noticed that when we're confronted with a situation that looks like a contradiction, you know, uh, uh, a binary decision, A, you have to choose option A or B situation, um, we tend to be very stubborn about refusing to pick sides in these alleged contradictions because we tend to believe that the truth is best served by living that tension instead of getting rid of it uh, and choosing on one side or the other of an alleged contradiction. We know it drives people crazy. Like, I know, you know, it's just, I, I know we drive people crazy. But the most common ones, people come to us all the time, like, hey, man, so are you, are y'all conservative or progressive? What's the deal? And we're like, mm-hmm. Because, I mean, what, I don't know how to answer that question. Yes, we're both those things. Uh, a faithful Christianity has to be conservative, right? Because you don't get to make Christianity up. Who are you? Right? You receive the faith. You don't make it up. But then a faithful Christianity also has to be progressive in certain ways. We have to be open to the new things the Spirit of God wants to do. If we had not been open to the new things the Spirit of God wants to do, then, you know, be all Jews. None of us Gentiles would be in here. Still be slaves. Women would still be second-class citizens. We have to be progressive in certain ways. We've got to do both of them. And um, we think this approach is very biblical. Jesus does it all the time. You know, people are like, Jesus is A or B. And he's like, once upon a time, this guy had some money. He went and buried it. And then later he came back. Jesus did all the time. The Apostle Paul conducts a master class in it here in 1 Corinthians 6 in relation to proper Christian expressions of sex, right? And so Paul says, look, God's for the body. God will raise the body. God created us to enjoy our good bodies and God's good world. God created food and drink and sex, right? Satan didn't sneak in breakfast tacos and a nice delicious cabernet and sex while God like wasn't looking you know it's like God created Adam and Eve he was like y'all hang out sing praise songs right I'll be right back he turns around to do something and he turns back like, oh my god what are Adam and Jesus son don't look you're not on to see any of this stuff what has happened no this is this is God's idea God created all this stuff think about this God could have created whatever kind of world God wanted right I think we all have to agree on that God could have created any girl God wanted, and yet God chose to create what? A physical world filled with physical bodies that have physical needs, physical desires. And what did God say once God had created this world? Did God say it was good? He said it was very, very good. Uh, I love the way Paul says it in verse 19. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Right, think about this for a second. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that just as creation itself is God's temple. And that's what we find in Genesis 1 and 2. Creation is described as God's temple. It is a physical world filled with God's Spirit. So your body is also God's temple. It is a physical body filled with God's Spirit. And precisely because your body is the good creation of a good God, because your body is filled with God's Spirit, you are not free 
to do whatever you want with your body. As Paul says it so forcefully here at the end of verse 19, I love this phrase, you are not your own. You are not your own. That's what Paul says. And so your body and your bodily desires, man, they are good, they are great, they are wonderful, they are God-given. And precisely because of that, no, it's not your body, your choice. Because your body is not just your body. But rather your body is filled with the spirit of the God whose you are. Your body belongs to the body of Christ. That's what Paul says. Your body is not your own. Your body belongs to the body of Christ. Your body belongs to the God whose you are. Earlier I I mentioned this really wonderful article by Caitlin Beatty where she reflects on this tension between purity culture and consent culture. I don't usually make really long quotations, but she says this so well that I couldn't steal any of it from her and not give her credit. So it's a long quotation here, but hang in, it's really good. She says, I'm 34, unmarried and a committed Christian and have over time not held to the purity standards that I inherited from my faith community. Now, one would think that Pastor Bowles Weber's, so this is the lady who wrote Shameless, her shame-free ethic would be a tall glass of water for a grace-parched soul. Now, instead, I find myself with a sense of loss. For amid the horrible teachings about women's bodies and God's anger over an exposed bra strap, the proponents of purity culture were trying to offer us the gift of sex within marriage. As I continue to date with the hopes of meeting a partner, I yearn for guidance on how to integrate faith and sexuality in ways that honor more than my own desires in a given moment. This is why a sexual ethic centered on consent, which is what those of us who have lost purity culture are left with, feels flimsy. Now, to be sure, consent is a non-negotiable baseline, but two people can consent to something that's nonetheless damaging or selfish. And I long for more robust categories of right and wrong besides consent. Purity culture is not the future of Christian sexual ethics, but neither is the progressive Christian approach that simply baptizes casual sex in the name of self-expression and divorces sex from covenant faithfulness and self-sacrificial love. Last paragraph here. While I hate the effects that purity culture had on young women like me, I still find the traditional vision for married sex, radical, daunting, and extremely compelling. And one I still want to uphold even if I fumble along the way. Isn't that good? In closing, our bodies and our sex, they are not meant to be sources of repression and shame. And I know they have been for a lot of us. And that's a weight you need to take off today. God is what, according to Paul, God is for the body. But precisely because God is for the body, precisely because our bodies matter so much, our bodies and our sex should not violate God's design for them, not even in the name of consent, autonomy, or pleasure, because when we violate God's design for our bodies, we harm our bodies and our souls, because at the end of the day, They're just two sides of the same coin. Remember, you are your body, is what Paul said. All that to say, we can't do whatever we want with our bodies. Why? Because God is for the body, not because God is against it. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of another day 
we do not deserve. We're grateful to be here gathered together as a church family at the Vista. And God, I, I, I come to you and, man, I, I just know there is a lot in the room tonight. A lot of shame for mistakes that we have made sexually. For mistakes others have made that we have had to deal with the fallback of. I know there's a lot of guilt. I know there's a lot of confusion. I know a lot of us are very, very confused. We feel tugged in so many different directions. And so what I pray is that you would rid all of us of the shame that we feel. This unhealthy, doesn't do anything grief that just buries us in lies that tell us we have made mistakes that cannot be forgiven, that can never be redeemed, that can never be healed. In the name of Jesus, we release those things from you. There's no shame in your presence. For the guilt that some of us might feel, guilt's a bit more complicated. Sometimes guilt is this reminder that, oh yeah, we, we are violating your design for us. It's not meant to make us feel ashamed. It's meant to try to help us get well. And so for those of us who have guilt because of some things we have going on, I pray that you would, in your great mercy, lead us to some repentance. And then for all of us who are still confused, you know, and, and dealing with complicated situations, and, and I know that there's no way what I've said tonight can perfectly speak to the specificity involved in all of our lives and our situations. I just pray that you would be present and that we would all be humble enough to come before you, be honest, tell the truth, seek mercy, find help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.